My name is Steve Smelsky. Welcome today to Hope Through Grief. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to go into Jordan's and mine and my wife Shelley's story a little bit and talk about some of the background. In the meantime, I'd like to introduce you to co-host Marshall Adler. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm glad that uh, we are going to get an opportunity today to have you tell us about your journey with the loss of Jordan and your wonderful wife, Shelly. So what I'd like to do is if you could please tell us about Jordan. I think that'd be the best place to start. Okay. Jordan is Shelly's and mine only child. Um, He passed away when he was 11 and a half. He had graduated fifth grade and was getting ready to go into middle school after summer vacation. Jordan was a 100% 100-mile-an-hour boy from the moment he woke up to the moment he fell asleep. He was all go, he was all in on everything he did. Jordan liked to go first. Um, he always liked to win. He was actually very talented uh, artistically. He his paintings and colorings were very vivid. Uh, he was actually a very good writer. We didn't realize how good until we went back and read some of the things that he had written uh, after his passing. He was pretty good in school. I think he got the good grades for us. For him, he could take it or leave it. But um, he knew it made us proud of him, so he tried really hard on the grade side. Sports-wise, he was, he was pretty athletic. He played soccer for seven or eight years. He played baseball for a couple of years. Um, He also played some flag football. Um, Besides being 100 miles an hour and all boy, Jordan really wasn't scared of much outside of maybe spiders and snakes and alligators. He, um, He was the catcher on the baseball team because he was the only one on the team that wasn't afraid to get hit by the ball. On the soccer team, he was the goalie. Because he would lay right out, he'd take one off his head to keep it from going in the goal. He just, he had no fear, which as a parent, it scared us many, many times. He loved to swim. He learned to swim before he was two. Uh, He started taking swimming lessons about a year and a half. And within six months, he was off on his own with no floaters in the pool. We were a little concerned with all the drownings in Florida and wanted to make sure he knew how to swim. He loved swimming. We uh, we lived on a lake, and we wanted to make sure that he was able to swim if he needed to, but we also asked him not to go in to the water. He loved his friends. He loved playing games with them. He'd laugh and talk with them all the time. He was always trying to tell a joke to make you laugh. Uh, sometimes he'd say it too many times, and we'd have to say, okay, Jordan, that." It's not funny. You're going to have to get a different joke. But he um, he loved going on vacations with us. He loved hanging out with us. We went. He was actually very well-traveled. We uh, called ourselves the Three Amigos when we took off, and we traveled to a different country. And um, he was very passionate about his video games and playing with his friends and spending time with his cousins. 
and he uh, he always had a good time, and you'd hear the kids laughing, and Jordan was in the middle of it because he's trying to make everybody laugh. But um, he was all boy, and he was all ours, and uh, he could be a challenge, but um, Shelly and I were both in sales, and Jordan would try to sell you on all his ideas and wishes. His fifth grade teacher, Ms. Charlton, told Jordan he should go into sales because he'd be a good one. He'd always have an angle on something. He'd always try and talk you into doing something his way. But um, actually, we really miss him. What happened on your vacation in June 2014? That was the summer after he graduated fifth grade from Wilson Elementary. And we were trying to determine where to go. We usually took one very nice vacation over the summer when he was off from school. And we had a couple things fall through. And we asked him if he wanted to go back to Costa Rica because we had been there in 2011 when he was eight. And he said yes. He loved... uh, riding the horses. He loved holding the toucan. So he was all in. So we scheduled a vacation, ended up staying at the same resorts that we did the first time and didn't really give it a thought. We weren't really concerned. First time we checked into everything. We were really concerned. First time we'd ever been there. And we had such a great trip and the people were so friendly. We weren't really concerned when we left and went down in 2014. We ended up staying, we are there nine days, eight nights, and we stayed at two different resorts. We did a lot of different things. We did a lot of hiking. We did horseback riding. But we only swam one day. And Jordan and I spent the afternoon in the pool for six or seven hours going down a water slide. And the resort was near a volcano. And it had hot spring water and probably half of the pools. Well, the pool with the water slide was filled with hot spring water, so it was like 96 degrees. And he, I spent the whole afternoon, he, he wore me out and five or six other people. He just kept going down the slide. But you couldn't go down the slide without having all the water splash up in your face and go up your nose. And He and I had a great day. In fact, as a father and son, it might have been one of the best days we ever had together. It was just he and I in the pool for the whole afternoon. And um, I think we got there at noon, and we left a little bit after 6, went back, took a shower, and met Shelly at the room, and we, we went out to dinner at their five-star restaurant there at the resort. And um, he ended up having a headache the next day, but we left that resort, went into San Jose. He didn't feel as good the next day, and we flew back on Friday. So we swam on Tuesday and flew back to Orlando on Friday. What happened after you got back to Orlando? We flew into Orlando. I think we we spent three hours in customs because there was a thunder and lightning storm right after we landed and they couldn't unload the, the luggage. So we waited an awful long time and he kept complaining about a headache. Uh, hadn't gone away since we swam. And uh, I thought maybe he twisted his neck or pinched a nerve in his back from going down the slide with all the stunts he was doing. We ended up picking up takeout. Um, He woke up the next morning. He seemed a little better. 
He ended up playing his games all morning. He asked us if he could have his best friend Jaden over to play games with him. And we said, eh, you're not feeling that good. We just got back. We've been out of the country. It's a good day to rest up. You'll have a chance to play with him all summer long. So he um, played up until about noon. And by 1 o'clock, he was laying on his bed and complaining that his, his neck was getting stiff. He still had a headache. He just didn't feel good. As soon as he said he didn't want to play games, we knew something was up because... If he had a chance to play, he'd just sit there and play. We ended up having dinner that night, watched a movie. Shelly put, put him to bed. And about 11.30 Saturday night, he, he started vomiting. And he was up all night long. And Shelly woke me up partway through the night. I got up and stayed with him the rest of the morning. And she goes, I'm concerned. He's, he's just getting sick and he can't stop. And we said, if he's like that in the morning, we'll take him to the emergency room, especially since we've been out of country. So she came in to check in the morning, and he was still vomiting. He'd been up like every 20 or 30 minutes. And uh, neither one of us got much sleep. We got ready and took him to the emergency room. Um, talked to the doctor. We told him we'd been out of country. And uh, he asked, you know, were you around farms or around animals. And we said, yeah, we've been around all of that. We'd gone horseback riding. We'd also gone swimming at the pool. And he'd had the headache after we were swimming. So they said, well, the stiff neck leads us to think that it's probably meningitis. So we'd like to do a CT scan. And the only way we'll know for sure is do a lumbar puncture and check the CSF fluid from the spinal column. So we gave him the okay to do both. Both of them came back good. The CSF fluid was clear. His um, CT scan came back fine. There was no issues. And um, they said, we're going to transfer him down to the children's hospital, and we'll go ahead and admit him down there. So they transferred him via ambulance and put him in a regular room. He had a tough night. He still didn't feel that good. Uh, the next day... Other than not being able to keep anything down, they had him on medication, so he wasn't wasn't getting sick anymore, but they wouldn't let him have any fluids or any food. He really wanted to have a drink of a Coke, and they were like, no, you can't drink anything. But he and I, oh, we I laid on his bed, and we talked about the vacation, different things we were going to do for the summer, maybe where the next vacation was going to be, and it seemed like he was going to be just fine. When they checked him in, they said it's viral meningitis and you'll take him home in three to five days. And by the next day, it was like, yeah, okay, this is awesome. We'll be here for a couple of days and we'll go home. Well, Monday night, he started hallucinating. And Shelly and I laid on his bed on top of him because after the first half hour, he was seeing things on the ceiling, seeing things on the bed, and then his body started shaking. He couldn't keep his arms or his legs still, and they had a couple IVs in. And so we ended up laying on top of him for three to three and a half hours because we couldn't get the nurse to bring a doctor in. And his pupils dilated. It was just like you go to the eye doctor and have a test. Huge pupils, and he, he was looking really weird and... 
he was saying things that didn't make sense. And then as the three and a half hours went on, he said less and less. And at the end, he was just shaking uncontrollably on the bed with us on top of him. And he didn't know who we were. He didn't recognize us. He didn't know where he was. So they finally brought the ICU team in. And just as they came in the door, he had a seizure. He rolled over on his side. And they wheeled him down to ICU. They got him stable. And they said, okay, we've got him stable. He's going to be okay. It's going to be two to three weeks. And then the next night it got even worse. They were worried about the swelling in the cranium, and they were worried the brain would push down on the brainstem, which would kill Jordan. So we gave him approval to have a neurosurgeon drill a little hole in the top of his skull for a drain. And in that CSF sample, they saw the movement of the amoeba. And uh, they reached out to the CDC. They, they had a special drug that they've been using in the last few cases, and they put it on a flight to Orlando. Jordan didn't make it until the drug got there. He passed away at 6.35 Wednesday morning, seven and a half days after we swam. And uh, I think the flight from the CDC from Atlanta arrived about 8, and he passed away at 6.35 a.m. How did you deal with your grief seeing your son go through this? Like, I... I'll just interject that when Matt passed away, he was 3,000 miles away, and we got a call from the medical examiner, which was something I'll never forget, which was its own horrible way to learn about the passing. But you were there watching this happen. I mean, how did you deal with your grief after this? The morning he passed away... They had told us to try and get some sleep because we'd been up straight for pretty much three days. And they woke us up early. I think we got an hour, hour and a half sleep. And they said, look, we can't keep his vitals high enough to save him until the drug gets here. We need you to make a decision whether you want us to manually resuscitate him until the drug arrives. And we hadn't had much sleep. And they're asking us to make that decision. And so Shelly called her couple of her family members. I called my parents. My mom was a nurse in labor and delivery. And um, she said, Stephen, we, we can't tell you what to do with that decision. You guys have to make that. And Shelly got the same answer. So we asked the doctor if it was your son would you do it? And he said, no. During the, the process of the, the last 24 hours, Jordan's left lung had collapsed because of the intubation that it was a, it was an adult intubation machine and it was too much pressure and it collapsed his left lung. So we knew we were going to have some lung issues and pneumonia issues. And uh, the thought of them pressing on his chest until the drug got here we just we said no so we called our family members and said you need to come right away and within 30 minutes we had eight of our family members and friends there and I was on Jordan's left side right side 
with his right hand, Shelley was on his left. And she asked everybody in the room, does anybody disagree with the decision we're making to let him go? If, if you disagree, please say so right now. And nobody said a word. So they took him off of the respirator and we waited maybe two minutes and he stopped breathing and they checked his heart and he was gone. And we held his hands for a few minutes and gave him a hug and we let everybody else have a turn. And uh, within 20 minutes, we were ready to go out of the room. We didn't want to be there. So we went next door, got our things, and we left. And by the time the doctor came back, he goes, we looked around, and you guys were already gone. And we're like, we just couldn't stay there. So we went home. We had a bunch of people at the house. And even though your mind saw it, your heart won't let it be true. We... Um, we were in shock for the funeral service. Actually, we're probably about 10 days, but we did a second service in New York and we we'd just come out of shock and it was awful. We, we thought we'd made a mistake flying up. We didn't want to be around people. We didn't want to go out of the house. We didn't, um, we didn't want to do much at all. We just couldn't believe he was gone. And it just, it just seemed so surreal that we had just been through that week after the best vacation we'd ever had together. And it happened so quick, you don't really have time to let it sink in. We didn't know he wasn't going to make it until they woke us up the morning he died because we were still thinking the drug was going to save him. The CEO of our company called us that night in ICU and offered up his plane to fly in any drug or any doctor that we needed and reached out to Stanford University to get a doctor from there in touch with our doctor. And as it turned out, nothing would have changed the outcome. The, um, the initial diagnosis, um, based on what Jordan died from, is fatal. They don't have time to go back and make a change until things don't make sense. It's too late. You, there's no way to save the patient. So we had family stay with us for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and they, they're gone. And you're in the house and it's so quiet without Jordan. And you're thinking that I can't stay here. This is horrible. And yet you don't want to go outside. You don't want people to talk to you. You don't want them to run into you. We had a lot of phone calls and a lot of text messages. Sometimes it was four or five days before I could call him back. It was, I guess we were in denial for a while because it seemed like the first four or five months that we were at the house, every time the front doorbell rang, we thought it was Jordan. And we'd run to the door and then you'd go, oh, that's not going to happen. He's gone. So we um, decided that we need to get some help and we went to see a counselor for almost four months and we didn't feel like we were getting any better. We ended up meeting one of the pastors from one of the nearby churches and he told us about a grief program at his church and we signed up because we knew we were in trouble. 
and we went right away. We came in in the middle of the program. And from the videos and stuff, it seemed to help. So we signed back up when they started up after the first of the year. And we were still struggling. I mean, every day was a struggle. And it seemed like for the first two weeks, Shelly and I were on the same page. When she was having a bad time, I knew it, and I would go to her. And same with I was having a bad moment, she'd come. After the first two weeks, it was completely different. We had no idea that men and women grieve differently. We had no idea that everybody has a different journey of grief. And at first, we were like, okay, what's wrong with us? Why, are, why aren't we feeling the same thing? So we started through the program, and we... Um, made some progress, so we signed up for a third time. And it felt better and better, but we still had a hard time accepting it. So we went to sign up for a fourth time, and they said, well, you can sign up, but you're going to have to help. So I guess they thought we were better, and we were like, we can't help anybody. And they're like, we think you can. What made you decide to help others because I will tell you that you were so instrumental in helping us through our grief process. And I mentioned before, I've said this many times to many people publicly that you have been a shining example for me and Debbie, how to survive the loss of a child and how to lead a productive, meaningful life. So I'm really interested in the thought process that you came through that made you decide that you wanted to help others after this tragedy. I think by signing up to go through the grief program early, now it was two and a half to three months after Jordan's passing, I think that was a help because we realized for the first time since he was gone, that maybe there was hope for us. We could see maybe a light down the road somewhere that we could pull things together. <laughs> Your brain is mush, and it is so difficult to concentrate on anything. I, our attention span was two minutes. I wish I had a dollar for every time I lost my car keys. It was that bad. I mean, sometimes I'd find the car keys in the freezer. I'd find them in the garage on top of the garbage can. Just crazy things. And I think once you start to feel a little bit better, it's like you, you gravitate to it because anything is better than where you were at. And you're not even 5% of what you used to be. And any chance that you might get back to what you were before, that's very attractive. So you gravitate towards it. Right after Jordan died, my sister-in-law was here and she found a couple family sites on the web for amoeba awareness. Jordan died from Nigleria fowleri, which the press calls the brain-eating amoeba, which is pretty much exactly what it does. When Jordan died, it was 99% fatal, which means if your kid gets it, 
they're going to die. There's pretty much no chance. There's only been a handful of survivors. And about two months into our grief before we started the program, we realized that we didn't want anybody else to go through this. And we thought, all these families have these websites, but we'd never heard of it before. We'd never seen the websites before. And it's like, maybe we could do it. We had no idea how to start a not-for-profit. And some of our closest friends and family members helped us pull it off. And we set it up and we asked the, I think we had four of our closest friends that we thought could be influential on the board to be board members. And they said yes. And we started. It took us four or five months to meet with the different hospital systems. We basically did a David Letterman top 10 list. And we said, this is what happened to Jordan. We think every one of these has has to change. And if we don't change it, the next patient's going to die too. We found out Jordan wasn't the first case. He was the fourth. Okay, so if you do nothing, outcome's going to be the same. Well, we we met with Dr. Rajan Wenhawen, and he was fairly new as the chief medical officer, and he agreed to meet with us. And we made a few requests and suggestions, and he worked with us. And... Um, we started out wanting to do awareness, and at the same time, we're going through this grief program to teach us about our loss and our grief and the different steps and the stages, the different things that you're going to feel. It, we couldn't understand, as we started through our grief process, why some of the things we were feeling, we, it felt like we got over them, and then two or three weeks later, they came back. And they're actually stronger the second time until they, they start explaining that it's like being at the ocean and a set of waves coming in. The waves can knock you over, but it's not constant. You can get back up, get back on your feet, and wait for the next one to hit you. Until they explain it that way, we thought we were going crazy because it was like, man, I just got through that. And now I'm going back through it. I don't understand what's wrong with me. Anger would come up and it kept coming back and coming back, came back like four or five times for me. I was angry about what had happened with Jordan. So we're going through the program, learning and feeling like we're, I'll say crawling forward because you don't run. You certainly don't even walk. Many times you fall down. And at the same time, we're working with our friends to come up with an idea of not having any other families go through it. And um, after the second time through the grief program, we came up with the idea of changing how healthcare deals with what Jordan died from. And so we approached Dr. Wethowen. We worked with the health departments in Orange and Seminole counties. We reached out to the CDC. We reached out to several different experts around the U.S., and we came up with a meeting that we held in September of 2015. And we brought in the experts, and we did a program. Shelly and I didn't even know what we are doing. It was like we are leaning on everybody else. But we got up, and we shared, and we cried, and we told them why it had to change, and they all got behind us, and they started working. 
Well, from that first summit, some of the things we came up with in the education and some of the training actually led to the next boy that came through the hospital from South Florida. He came up to the theme parks, ended up at the hospital. He swam in South Florida. He actually lived. And at that point, we realized that we actually might be able to make a difference. So while everybody else focused on awareness, we focused on the ones who actually got it. Um, based on Sebastian's outcome, we put together a training video to train other healthcare lab technicians on how to identify it quickly because there is no early detection test. So if you misdiagnose it or you don't consider this, the patient dies because by the time you figure the damage is done and the patient won't live. That's why it's 99% fatal. So we put together a training video, which has been shared. It's been shared in Spain. And um, two years ago, there was a 10-year-old girl that lived in Spain. And the doctor at the hospital that we've worked with, he shared it with all of his people. He actually went and identified the girl's case, and he had watched the video. And the girl lived. And then we realized that we really could influence something that nobody had ever taken the approach with. But I think it took a parent who lost two parents that have lost a child as their motivation to not take no for an answer. I mean, we get turned down all the time, but we don't quit. In the meantime, we've continued to do the grief program and they eventually ask us to help facilitate. And we actually got healing from helping others. I know it seems strange, but you get to the point where you're on your feet, you don't fall down as much, but helping somebody else and helping them go from where you were, where you were completely non-functional, couldn't stand on your own, to be able to come out and finally smile after five or six months. I mean, it almost felt like you weren't supposed to smile anymore because I've got all this pain and grief. But to watch somebody else come through the program where you were and then end up where they give you a hug and say thank you and say, I don't know what I would have done. I'll do it the rest of my life. It's, it is very healing to be able to help them. And you know they're going to help somebody else. It's amazing how many people we've talked through that came through the program. They said, you know, I've had three or four people reach out to me and I, I actually, I know what to say or to do or how to maybe just listen. But until you get in that situation, I'm not sure you ever know how you can help somebody or what you can say or what you can even do for them. Shelly, I used to avoid people because we weren't sure what to say to them. And I, I remember going to the, the grocery store, and I see somebody in the first aisle. They're at the far end. And I said, oh, I'll meet them when I get around to the next aisle. And I look, and I look, and I look, get to the far end, and they're gone. And then I realized they didn't know what to say to us. So being associated with a program that meets fairly regularly, I think we're doing 32 weeks out of the year, we're in touch with people who understand, they get it, they know where we're at because 
they're a little bit further behind us. We had a few people that led us that are a little bit ahead of us. And to take all the extra energy that we've gotten and put it into the foundation towards changing outcomes, that's very, that feels good as well. It feels like you're not, I don't think we've ever gotten back to the point of where we were before Jordan died. I, those people are gone. I, they, they both died with Jordan. I don't think we're as sharp mentally. I don't think we can stay as focused all the time. But it actually felt good to accomplish something that nobody else had ever done. And I remember thinking, we are never going to be able to do anything. We don't, we don't know what, we're not doctors. We don't know what's going on. Yet we started raising questions that nobody had ever addressed before. And they were common sense questions. And we saw exactly what Jordan went through and we're like, that's got to change. So we've worked with doctors from around the U.S. This past summit we had in September, we had, I think we had 24 doctors come in from 10 universities around the U.S., University of Washington, Clemson, University of Georgia, Duke, Yale, um, UCF, USF, San Diego and Northeastern. And we met with all the doctors. We did a day two and we talked about part of the problem with this disease, primary amoebic meningoencephalitis is there's no early detection test and there's no, there's no drug made for this treatment. And so we've been supporting them because they got some brilliant minds and they may be able to come up with something that could actually save more lives. So We've tried to stay focused on both things. It helps us personally to help others. And it certainly helps knowing that we might change outcomes from what Jordan died from. Our initial goal was to make sure that we could come up with a process for saving a patient with Pam so Jordan would have lived. And we actually did that in less than two years because Sebastian came into the same hospital. Then we had the girl a couple of years ago in Spain who Dr. Lorenzo Morales had actually worked with us. Well, because we shared the information with him uh, last year, I think this is a week before Thanksgiving, they had a uh, free living amoebas conference. They call it FLAM 2019. And the doctor that we funded research for at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, Dr. Francine Marciano Cabral, she actually started this international conference 38 years ago. And every two years, they travel to a different country. And a lot of these have, doctors have been to all of them, all 19 conferences. And I met a couple doctors from Germany, and this was their 19th conference. Well, they invited us to go, and then that conference was in Costa Rica. And Shelly and I had said we would, we would never go back to Costa Rica. And Dr. Morales reached out to us and said that they'd like to dedicate Wednesday of the conference week to Jordan. It was Nigeria Falari Day, and it was in Costa Rica, and they, they wanted dedicate, and they wanted our permission. So we talked about it, and 
went to bed and we got up in the morning and we both had the same response because I said to Shelly, I said, what do you think we should do? And she said, I think we should go. But I think we should ask him if we can speak to the group. And I smiled because that's exactly what I was going to say. So we told him, yes, they were ecstatic. He contacted the team in Costa Rica and they they were phenomenal. And so Shelly and I went down with our board of directors the week before Thanksgiving. We ended up doing an interview while we were there in Costa Rica, and it played the whole week we were there on national TV. The um, cab driver that picked us up, take back to the airport, he goes, Steve, I've been watching you on TV all week. Well, it was a great conference. We met a lot of different researchers from around the world some great contacts. We talked about the things that we were focused on and the two doctors that were from the University of Costa Rica, they, um, they were involved in a PAM case. So at the time, Jordan was the only confirmed case of PAM in Costa Rica. They'd never had another PAM case. In fact, I think they questioned whether he was infected there because of all the cases in Florida. Well, because of us going back, uh, Dr. Lorenzo Morales did an interview in Spanish, and I did the one in English and talked about what we were trying to do and talked about Jordan. I had some pictures of Jordan that we gave them. Well, December 28th, 2019, a boy was diagnosed with PAM, the same thing that Jordan was infected with. And Dr. Morales reached out to me, and I go, wow, that's awesome. How did it happen? And he said, Steve... I asked the doctor and he said, I found out about it from the Jordan Smelsky Foundation on the interview at Thanksgiving time. And then they didn't have the drug that they needed and they started treatment early. The boy ended up passing away on January 9th of this year, but he was now the second confirmed case. And the drug wasn't in country, hadn't gone through customs, but they got it right near the end. We actually spoke with his mom. Uh, the boy, was, his name was Jose, and his, he was 15 years old. Met with his mom and spoke with her. One of our board members speaks fluent Spanish, so he, he did both ways translations for us so we could communicate. And she struggled just like we did, all the same things. So she's reached out to us a few times. But three weeks after that, Dr. Morales let me know that there'd been another case in Costa Rica. And it was a four-year-old girl. Well, the same two doctors who held the conference identified it in that case. They were aware of it because of Jose's case in December. And she actually got what was left of Jose's drug, and she lived. And that was just in, that was like February 14th of this year. So those are the type of things that keep you going. Those are the type of things that you want to give back on. We continue to help on the grief side of it. And we've started to realize that we can make a difference and we can reach out. It just takes an effort on our part to put ourselves out there and you never know what's going to come out of it. So we'll continue to help others because... It's helpful to us and 
people did it to help us get to where we're at today. There's a old saying in the Jewish religion that says that if you save one life, it's like you save the entire world. And you've already done that by changing the protocol medically is amazing that you've taken your grief and literally saved lives with it. So the good work that Jordan did when he was on this earth, you and Shelley are continuing, which is incredible. And I'll tell you, I went to the 2019 summit that you put on here in Orlando, Florida, Florida Hospital. And I was just amazed by the high level of organization, medical experts, cutting-edge technology, and research they were doing because of you and Shelly. It was, it was phenomenal. It really was. I was just blown away by it. Oh, and, you know, every death is due to a medical reason, whether it's an amoeba or heart attack, stroke, mental illness, it's a medical reason, and throughout history, it's been a battle to figure out why that happened, what we can do about it. And obviously, you and Shelley have really changed the course of medical history with this amoeba, which, again, is like saving the world. It really is. We've, we've had an awful lot of help. We've had some great support from Dr. Wad Howen, the health departments here in Florida. We couldn't have done it on our own. Well, I want to tell one more story that applied to us personally because you and Shelly were fantastic with the grief share coursework we went through. It literally was learning about grief, but it was also very comforting that we all spoke the same language. When you're out in the real world, you know, people say, how about them Yankees? Okay, I'm a Yankee fan, but I look at the Yankees differently than I did when Matt was alive. It's just, it's a baseball game. It's different. So when you're out dealing in the real world, it's just a different set of circumstances and people and language you're dealing with. So being among people that spoke the same language, it just made it easier. You didn't have to explain anything, tell the story for the umpteenth time, and try to put a square peg in a round hole. But when it ended, it really affected us because you had this wonderful uh, ceremony. And I'll just digress for a second, which is interesting because what the ceremony was, was having everybody in the Grief Cheer program write a note to your lost loved one. So Debbie and I wrote notes to, to Matt. And we all went out and threw it in the bonfire and saw the smoke go up, hoping against hope that your lost loved one would get it. And Debbie's message to Matt was, we had not heard from him. Like, we absolutely believe that we have been contacted by Matt in afterlife. And after we threw his note into the bonfire, we went into our car to go home and it was bittersweet because we loved 
going through the grief share program, but it was over. And it was sort of like you said with the grief process, everybody's there helpful, but then people leave and you're on your own. And the same thing with grief share. It, it goes on Monday nights, but then you got to go back to, to your house in reality. And we went into the car and we know for an absolute guaranteed, no doubt what the last song that Matt listened to on this planet, it was a 1967 song by the association called Never My Love. And of all the songs that could have played on the radio, we have satellite radio with a million different stations, a million different songs. I started the car up right after we left, and Debbie threw that note into the bonfire asking for Matt to give us a sign. We turn the car on, and the disc jockey says, and here is 1967, the association, Never My Love. And Debbie and I looked at each other and go, what are the odds of that ever happening? And it just meant so much to us that I think Matt really knew we needed to hear from him, and we did. I really believe that. And it's, I don't want to say it's the same thing, but it's just interesting because we were, again, I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and they had this, documentary recently about Michael Jordan and the coach was Phil Jackson who was a very metaphysical very very intelligent very intellectual type of guy and they all knew that this team was going to go their separate ways and at the end of all of it the the way the documentary ended they did the same thing they took notes threw it in a bonfire and Phil Jackson had grown up, I think, in Montana with very close contact with the American Indian population. And ironically, my mother, who was this Jewish woman from New York City, was a public health nurse who spent six months on a Blackfeet Indian reservation in Browning, Montana. And she fell in love with the American Indians. To the day she died... She was in contact with the Blackfoot Indian Reservation in Montana. She went out there in 1990 with my father, some 43 years after she was there, and she saw middle-aged people that she helped bring into the world because she was the only nurse. If you were born in 1947, she was there bringing you into the, the world. And so my mother always had a soft part of her heart with the Indian philosophy of living and dying. And I think Phil Jackson had that. And I think I sort of have it now from the, the bonfire because it just, it just was different. And so it's amazing how you can take grief and say, we're going to do something positive out of the ultimate negative that can happen to anybody because we want our loved ones to make a difference. And I think that especially when you lose a child, you want to make sure nobody's ever going to forget the effect that your son had on the earth. And the fact that they're not here now, it's our goal to do it. So I cannot thank you enough for the effect you've had in our lives 
And for the other hundreds of people that you've affected that haven't told you that, I'm speaking on their behalf because you've had a wonderful effect, not just medically with the foundation, but also what you do with Grief Share and hopefully what we do with this show. Because through technology, we obviously are going to have a much easier time reaching many, many, many people that will be grieving. Again, this show will hopefully be out there a thousand years from now. So I'll just tell you that we're recording this in the year of 2020 when there's a worldwide pandemic. And somebody a thousand years from now listening to this might have to go through a history book or a Google or who knows what they'll be then to read about the 2020 pandemic, but we're in the middle of it. And I think because of that, it's just the unfortunate reality that people that don't even know it yet will be in our shoes experiencing grief like we have. So I know when you and I talked about how to help others, a show like this with technology that now exists is the way to help as many people as possible. And I know Matt would want me to do that. And it sure the heck sounds like Jordan would want the same. Am I, am I correct? Yes. And Shelly and I are just like any other couple that loses somebody really close. You don't want people to forget who they ever were. And uh, that keeps us going. Yeah, I forgot which civilization it was, and I should Google this, but it just came to my head that there's a civilization that believes you actually die twice. You die physically, obviously, when you're physically no longer here and you pass away. But you also die a second time when the last time somebody on this planet mentions your name. And I heard that many times before. And again, I don't know which civilization it's attributed to, but I never really understood it until Matt passed away. And I totally understand it now. I want people to understand how lucky I was as a father and our family was as a unit to have Matt in our lives. He just was a gift from God. And the fact that he's not here physically doesn't stop our love and it doesn't stop the good work that he did. And I'll, I'll just try to close with this, you know, at the, um, eulogy I gave, I had to tell about Matt's life to many people didn't know him. A lot of his friends were there, but a lot of our friends were there. They never met Matt. So I had to use a lot of quotations from movies. And I used the line, last line that Patrick Swayze made in the movie Ghost with Demi Moore. If you remember the movie, he was, he passed on and he was a ghost, and she didn't see him till the end. And when he was going to the other side, he just told her that, he said, I love you, I've always loved you, 
And it's amazing. The love inside, you take it with you. I remember that line. Yeah. And I believe that. And that is absolutely true because he's been gone and the love doesn't go. The love doesn't go. So I think we both have a connection with our children that is different than other people's because our sons are no longer physically here, but it doesn't make it less real, doesn't make it less significant, and doesn't make it less important to the betterment of mankind. And I believe that. So I can't thank you enough for telling your story and You've been such a good friend and such a help through our journey. And what I hope from this show that both of us will be able to help as many people as possible that will be on the same journey that we have been on since we lost our sons. So thank you so much for telling your story, Steve. And you've been a very good friend. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Hope Through Grief with your co-hosts, Marshall Adler and Steve Smelsky. We hope our episode today was helpful and informative. Since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.